another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with professor and brief writer Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. And next time I see you, we'll be in Florida together. Yes, that's right. We have a big week this week because the EverScholar program that we've talked to you about for a long time, Reverberations of the Revolution, is going to take place down in uh, Florida this week. And we've got a packed house and uh, stellar faculty, and we're, we're very excited about it. In fact, uh, the course was so popular that we wound up opening another uh, section of it, and it's going to take place again in March. This time it'll be up north in Connecticut. So what we did was we had such a long waiting list for, for that program, and a lot of it were, thank you listeners, yourselves, people that responded very enthusiastically to uh, this offering. So we you know, had this wait list and we went down the wait list. And, and so we've got a whole bunch of people from that are listeners to the podcast coming in March. And that course actually filled from the wait list before we even got to open it to the general public. So, you know, we're going to do it twice and who knows, you know, maybe it'll be offered a third time. So we'll let you know. Um, and so the way to find out is to keep listening to this podcast, but also to watch uh, the website, everscholar.org, where there'll be announcements coming on this and, and other courses. So just to, you know, and maybe we'll tease them, you know, as time goes on. And also just to remind our listeners that this episode is eligible for CLE credit, especially if you are in the states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, or New York, but also through other states via reciprocity. And later in this episode, we'll give you the, uh, the code, I feel like, you know, Groucho Marx with the, the secret word. I'm dating myself here, I think. But anyway, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll tell you that secret word later on in the, in the, uh, in the podcast. But, mean, but meanwhile, the, the country's still abuzz with the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and we've been talking about this on and on. We've started to get, to get emails and say, okay, okay, the president is an officer, enough for anyone that. <laughs> um, and uh, I feel that way too, audience. Uh, but of course, you know, it's it's this meme that keeps keeps uh, bouncing back, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on that this week. Instead, um, let's just talk about what's happened, you know, since last week, which is that the Supreme Court has accepted or granted certiorari and, uh, and has scheduled uh, oral arguments on the case early in February. Um, so that means that amicus briefs, uh, can be submitted, and there's a deadline coming up. And so, uh, Akil is working on a brief. Is that right, Akil? Yes, at least one. It's possible two, depending on circumstances. And and what we're going to do today, Andy, is begin to give the audience a sneak preview of some of the ideas in the brief. But we're going to do it in the context of talking about the nine justices. I actually think the brief or briefs that will be filed will have genuinely new stuff that isn't out there um, already, it hasn't even been in our previous podcast episodes, much less in the literature. And that's in part because I've learned a ton over the last um, <laughs> few days that I didn't know before that is, I believe, supremely relevant, maybe even decisive in this upcoming case, which is a very important case. And so we're going to begin to talk about some of the issues, and we're going to do so 
in the context, really, of the individual justices. Because, of course, the, the point of the brief, it's a brief to the United States Supreme Court, is to persuade the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court isn't it, but it's also a they. There are nine justices, and each of them has a mind of her or his own. And we're going to talk about the nine minds and how we, uh, Vic Amar is going to be involved in this project, and there may be some others, are going to try to actually offer arguments analysis that might be particularly, we hope, persuasive to each of the nine, and each of the nine might be looking for a slightly different thing. And a good brief, a really great brief, pulls everything together, ha- tells a coherent story, has a, has a powerful th- a through line and, and narrative and schema, but also manages to at least count to five, so to speak. And I would say ideally count to nine. Uh, the count to five reference, which our audience uh, has maybe heard before, is a line from William Brennan, who famously asked incoming law clerks, what's the most important thing you need to understand at the Supreme Court? And, and people said, oh, you know, following the rule of law or equal justice under law. And he says, well, that's all very good. But the most important thing is how to count to five. Mm-hmm. William Douglas had a different version of that. I think a far more cynical version. You just have to listen carefully to the difference because William Brennan was always about putting the deal together. If if it were a basketball team, he'd be the playmaking guard that kind of coordinates everything. But Douglas is said to have remarked uh, on at least one occasion, with five votes, we can do anything. And that's a slightly different thing than you have to count to five. It's a more crude, realistic, well, we can just do anything we want. And I'm less of a Douglas fan, frankly, than I am an admirer of Justice Brennan, who was a mentor to one of my dear mentors, Owen Fiss. But I've already begun to tell you, oh, Douglas thinks differently from Brennan. They both think differently from Black. Felix Frankfurt, a different point of view, and so did Robert Jackson. That was the court of the 1950s. Now we're going to talk about the court of the 2020s. And once again, there are different justices with different sensibilities. And what we're going to do in this podcast episode, Andy, at least I hope we do with your permission, is talk about the briefs that we're working on and how we aim to target and and persuade, ideally, um, each of the nine justices. So a couple of things about what you just said. First of all, I, I assume it was a, uh, a deliberate pun when you said that it would be supremely relevant. <laughs> um, but uh, the other thing about uh, counting to five, I think uh, some wag said that, well, it's easy to count to five when you start with seven, I think, or something like that. That was Stephen Breyer. Um, he, this is what he told me. It was repeated. Uh, I gave this line to Jeff Tubin for an, a profile that he did of Stephen Breyer long ago. I think it was for the New Yorker. And Breyer, who clerked for the Supreme Court in the heyday of um, William Brennan, and who was very aware of this aphorism, and himself actually, you know, had more difficulty being in the majority consistently. And it wasn't his fault, you see, because it was a different historical moment. And so one day he actually came up to, uh, so I'll t- two stories that I told to Jeff Tubin. One is Justice Breyer had just finished his first term and I met with him afterwards and kind of was talking to him about all the cases. I was kind of giving him an assessment thing. He invited me to do it. He's very generous that way. He says, Akil, you know, why don't you come up to Boston? We'll have lunch and you can tell me what you think about, you know, what happened over the last year, which was his first year on the court, a new year. So I went through a bunch of stuff and he had written opinion. It was a dissent. 
in Lopez, which is a case about the gun-free schools zone. And, and I said, you know, you wrote a really powerful dissent. It had all of your themes. It was deferential. It was empirical. It was pro-education. It was, in a word, Brandeisian. And frankly, boss, I can't remember any justice in recent memory in his or her first term on the court who had a, a more impressive opinion that year. And he just looked at me very sadly, and he held up four fingers, saying, like, Akhil, I wasn't trying to write a dissent. Now, subsequent to that, I would say that my friend Elena Kagan wrote a spectacular dissent. Also, It was a dissent also. In her first term, it was a case about campaign finance in, I believe, Arizona. And Chief Justice Roberts got five votes at the end of the day, but I thought that uh, Elena won the argument in that one. But it's very hard in your first term to actually find your, your footing and say something extraordinary. So that was the first. Justice Breyer, he, he, he's not built for dissent. He didn't love being in dissent, truth be told. So then later on, he, he came up to me and he says, Akil, I, I finally figured out how Brandon you know, was always able or routinely able to count to five. He said, well, do tell. He said, he started with seven. <laughs> And, and he, that's right. Brennan was part of a coalition on the court, a New Deal, Great Society coalition. The court is the ghost of Christmas past. A president's pick justices by and large. Now, they don't always get their pick, especially if they don't control the Senate. That's Merrick Garland. But what we call the Warren Court is simply the lagging indicator, the judicial after effect of Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and then Roosevelt Truman, then Truman, then two terms of Eisenhower, who today would be a, you know, a moderate Democrat, frankly, who put on the court people, including Earl Warren and William Brennan, and then you had Kennedy and Johnson. Now, I think that's nine presidential elections in which you, you, we had a range from kind of very, very moderate president, Dwight Eisenhower, to quite liberal presidents, uh, Franklin Roosevelt again and again and again, Lyndon Johnson. And the precipitate of that, um, the, the residue, is called the Warren Court. So, of course, on that court, you know, the liberals had a huge head start. As I've told the audience before, basically uh, for my entire adult lifetime, uh, last you know, 50 years or so, the Democrats have never had a majority on the court. When Hugo Black rotated off and William Douglas, the Democrats basically lost their majority. There was a nanosecond when it was four to four, when Justice Scalia unexpectedly passed away. But that seat did not go to Garland. It instead ultimately went to, to Gorsuch. And so it is a very different world today, but it's the product of presidential elections. Now, you mentioned William Douglas and his philosophies being somewhat different from Justice Brennan's. And of course, Douglas is one of the scorpions, you know, in, the, uh, in Noah Feldman's book. And he talks about different theories or different approaches to... Uh, to judging, whether it's legal realism or whatever. And of course, that book is written by Noah Feldman, and it's a, it's a very good book. On the other hand, uh, Noah Feldman is also a, a pundit nowadays and had a piece in uh, Bloomberg that we didn't like, you know, and that sort of thing. And, what, and it, it, that kind of brings up something that uh, we've noticed about this case, which is that you have people that are falling into you know, different categories that might be a little bit different than their usual categories. So in other words, usually we find, you know, liberal and conservative divisions. And here, just like 
you know, these justices had sort of different theories, you know, of the of of judging. Now we have, you know, pundits falling in different categories. And I wonder if this might be useful to think about that as we start to think about the justices, you know, and what categories they may fall into. And there yes. are a case like this. Yes, let me identify actually two different types of people on the left and two different types of people on the right among the pundit class, especially sort of the journalists or the self-understood public intellectual law professors who, you know, might be actually truthfully talking through their hat just a bit because they're not expert scholars on this particular issue, but they have opinions and they want to share them with the world. That includes my friend and student, Noah Feldman, whose book, Scorpions, I quite liked, and whose more recent book on Abraham Lincoln, The Broken Constitution, I quite disliked. On the left, you have a bunch of pundits. Many of them are kind of very serious. Some of them are leftists, and some of them are just more conventional liberals, but they are actually advocating that the court strike down the Supreme Court, what Colorado has done. So Ruth Marcus, I would say, is a mainstream liberal. Sam Moyne is a person on the left. Noah Feldman is, I think, closer to Ruth Marcus. And Larry Lessig is maybe closer to Sam Moyne. But all of those, there are people left of center, and they said, oh, the Supreme Court should smack down what Colorado has done, the Colorado justices. And I think there are two different sensibilities here that they have. One, some of them basically very much worship democracy, small d democracy, and they just can't get over the idea that some people are going to be excluded from the ballot and then the voters aren't going to have the choice. And I think that's where Larry Lessig is coming from to some extent, and Sam Moyne, and and maybe Ruth Marcus as well, maybe Noah. But the counter from other liberals, you see, like the great Larry Tribe, who are in favor of what Colorado did, is they understand democracies on both sides of the equation here, okay? Because were Trump to be reelected, despite the fact that he did actually lead an insurrection, and if he were to do it again because he'd be emboldened by that, well, then maybe that's the last vote we'll ever have in America. And that's not democracy, you see? And the Constitution itself was democratic, and it has rules, and we should follow them until we amend them. Um, And um, there are all sorts of ways in which the Constitution itself limits who you can vote for. Uh, We'll talk about some of them um, in in detail. Sore loser laws and the Electoral College itself and the fact you can't uh, vote for a two-term person who's already done two terms as president and someone who's not not natural born. So some of the liberals who want the Supreme Court to invalidate what Colorado has done are doing so. I think their understanding is democracy. Others are just... Actually, they have, they're a little bit Burkean in their sensibilities. They are worried about kind of radical change, which is a conservative sensibility, you see. They were freaked out. Many of them are anti-originalist, and they were freaked out by Dobbs, which broke sharply from Roe and Casey. Don't love Bruin, which kind of really moved way beyond a kind of baseline when it came to, to gun rights. And this anti Originalist sensibility, this kind of conservative go slow sensibility makes them very nervous about a constitutional provision that they haven't thought very much about, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And this just seems another invitation to some kind of 
adventurism. On the other side, on the left. Before you leave that, just one more thing. I mean, this is really a corollary to what you said before, but yes, the Constitution is democratically adopted. And by the same token, the 14th Amendment and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment are democratically adopted as well. Yes, yes. You know, exactly so. so. You know, through the through a, a procedure outlined in another document adopted democratically, the Constitution. So you know, so so there, so if you don't follow the rules that were democratically adopted, that is not really democracy. And that's the, especially a few liberal originalists like yours. Truly, that's our you know a basic idea. And and we'll talk about Justice. Tenji Brown-Jackson, but she might be the most receptive to kind of a liberal originalist argument of a sort you just made. But we could also talk about, among professors, people like Larry Tribe. He's left of center. He's not entirely originalist in all his sensibilities. He actually takes cases seriously as well. And I think he understands, actually, for example, that the Moore versus Harper case is actually supportive of what the Colorado Supreme Court did. Moore versus Harper is about respecting state Supreme Courts when it comes to all sorts of issues, even involving federal elections, and that there's an important role for state Supreme Courts. And that's what the precedents themselves say, because Larry Tribe is less of a pure originalist. So on the left, you've got this division. I think he's a little bit more classically liberal and not sort of leftist always in his sensibilities. But there's a division among the pundits on the left, and many of the the folks on MSNBC, whom you might ordinarily think are, are just anti-Trump in general, you know, several of the op-eds in the in, in the New York Times and the rest have actually been surprisingly supportive of the bottom line position of Trump's lawyers. Now, on the right, among the pundits and the very serious people. You also have a division. Most of the pundits, by the way, are betting very much against the Colorado court. And, and that's in part my view is because the more you know, the more you studied it, the more serious the Bode, Paulson, Magliocca, Graeber analysis seems to you. But if you, if you haven't studied this, it seems like some weird, freakish, technical, ambiguous, quirky, clever thing. Okay, but not actually if you studied it in great detail. And we're going to get into all of that a little bit more today. So on, oh, and on the left, I would say closer to tribe is Richard Pildes, Rick Pildes, okay, who has always taken it seriously. And he's not quite an originalist, but he, he takes seriously originalist arguments. So you got tribe and Pildes kind of in one camp, and let's say Moyne and Marcus and Feldman in a different group, and they're all left of center. Well, I think also at the New York Times, in terms of, you know, punditry, we have uh, Jesse Wegman. Our who, friend Jesse, who's been on the program, I think he's closer to, to Tribe and mm-hmm. Pildes, and, and he studied it. I think he wrote a whole book on the Electoral College. And once you understand the Electoral College allows different states to do different things, you know, then you're going to be more sympathetic to the Bode Amar 50-state solution uh, approach to the whole thing. Okay, on the right, you've got... Some folks who are kind of traditional social conservatives, actually, they're Burkeans, and this scares them. It's a big new idea. The 14th Amendment is full of big new ideas that at certain times were scary. Racial equality, applying the Bill of Rights against the states, providing for appointed counsel for indigent criminal defendants, lots of big ideas in the 14th Amendment. Guns, gun rights, 
But if you're a traditional social conservative, kind of goes, this seems like out of the blue, especially if you don't know about it. And this isn't the Civil War. This is very different than the Civil War. That was about the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is some one-off about the Civil War. And that explains some of the sensibilities of great, great conservatives like Judge Michael McConnell. He is an originalist of sorts, but he's also a Burkean, very much so. And in that way, he, you know, he's part of the same, frankly, elite that Ruth Marcus is. You know, she's left of center, he's right of center, but, but they're kind of the establishment is what I think people might have said in an earlier era. Maybe the deep state or something, but that sees itself as a kind of ballast for a ship and doesn't love it when the ship just rocks wildly from port to starboard. But they're also, of course, conservatives who are more purely originalist, who are just willing to take seriously a constitutional provision wherever it leads. That's Bowdoin Paulson. That's Mike Ludig. Okay. There's a division on the right. There's a division on the left. It's interesting in this regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing that I found about your analysis there. Um, you know, we've been talking about this for a few weeks, and uh, to say the least, or months really. And uh, you know, we've been taking on the various arguments, and mostly the arguments that we've been putting forth have been arguments about what the law means. Um, but these these uh, schools of thought uh, that you just put out there, or these ways of approaching it, are not necessarily about what the law means. One of the, oh, which is more democratic? Or this is Burkean, like we don't want to rock the boat too much. You know. On the other hand, the originalists, you know, perhaps you might say they, I mean, this is not the only way to think about what the law is. Exactly. But, but, that's, but that's one way to do it. So let me actually, if I were trying to prettify a little bit these sensibilities and juridify them, make them sound as legal as possible, I would say that... Michael McConnell was once going to, Michael McConnell is a dear friend of mine. We've known each other for a long time and I really respect him. I think I might be on the other side uh, 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 on certain issues on this. But I remember long ago, he told me he's going to write a book about the three legs of the stool of law. Law is sometimes pure reason. Law is sometimes will, positive law, just the legislature has the votes. But the third leg that hasn't been as theorized, he thinks, as much as, you know, legislative will and, and pure judicial reason, right, reason, is custom or tradition. And, um, of course, precedent is a, one way of cashing out that idea. It's incremental. It, it, it tends to, to build slowly. That's the genius of the common law. And there are people left of center who like that common law genius, people like David Strauss at the University of Chicago, and people right of center like McConnell. But it, it, it's got a long legal pedigree, this idea of custom and going slow, um, in- incrementalism. On the court, someone like the second Justice Harlan, the grandson of the great dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson, was a traditional conservative, a go slow, incremental precedent kind of person. Elena Kagan may have that sensibility, even though she's she's left of center. Democracy, you could say, well, that's a structural argument. The Constitution actually is about we the people, starts with that. It, they're 
sentences in it all about Republican government. A huge part of the American constitutional tradition is about government of the people, by the people, for the people. So democracy would be said to be a kind, and it's, it's no more made up as a kind of overarching way of thinking about the Constitution. We had an episode on Charles Black, Structure and Relationship. People, someone would say, well, it doesn't say federalism, doesn't say checks and balances, doesn't say rule of law, doesn't say equal footing of equal states or something. Federalism, of course, is about the horizontal relationship among sister states and also the vertical relationship between the central government and the states. So just as it doesn't say those things, but they're part of the Constitution, of course, democracy is part of the Constitution. And I think the best argument isn't no, it's not part of the Constitution at all. Where does it say that? Mm-hmm. But Larry Tribes, it's on both sides. Right. Okay. Because, and, and in fact, if anything, because here, here's the one thing you have to make sure that there's always going to be an election after the next one. Okay. That's the most important thing. I, I'm international security and geostrategy. You have to have a government that's strong enough to be able to beat the British, beat the French, beat the Spanish, because otherwise you don't have a constitution, you don't have a country. And you have to make sure that whoever is elected, especially president, because it's such a powerful position, that there's going to be an election after that. And section three of the 14th Amendment is about that. And they and people who adopted it went through that experience and thought a time or two about this issue. And I happen to believe you don't, every member of the audience, that Donald Trump is an actual threat to the ongoing integrity of democracy. I might not like Biden for all sorts of other reasons, but here's the point. There's going to be an election after that. I'm pretty confident. And I'm not confident were Trump to be re-elected, especially because he would have gotten away with total disregard, I believe, of what the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is all about. I'm going to give you, you know, some, some reasons for that, but that makes him an especial threat, and in a second term and all the rest. And you can say, well, Keel, that's your view. And I say, yes, and listen to it, because I have spent all of my adult life studying how we came close to losing America in the revolution, with the Whiskey Rebellion, with the insurrection or almost insurrection and the nullification crisis of 1832. Actually, there were two insurrections in the 1860s. And you may think there's only one called the Civil War, but there was actually one before that that we're going to talk about just a bit. So I have studied, and not just the United States, how republics fail. How, how Rome fell, how Athens fell, how democracies around the world have not been forever. Tribe's best argument is democracy is on both sides. And if anything, if you're going to have a thumb on the scale, the thumb on the scale should be making sure that, okay, because there are insurrections and there are insurrections and there's, there are officers, there are officers, but the one thing you want to make sure of is that you don't put some people in the highest positions of power who actually seem open to ending the constitutional system, which is an insurrection of, of, a, of a very high sort. You said before that you have to make sure there's another election, and this is how democracy is a value, is, is an imperative in the Constitution. But, of course an election is not the same as democracy. And we know that, right? In other words, you said it before. You can't vote for Barack Obama. You can't, you know, we've been through this so many times over the last few right. years. I don't want to bore our audience by going through them all again. But the, but the real point there is that it's, 
that there are dem- dem- democracy is certainly a value in the Constitution, but it's not enough to say that something is less than perfectly democratic and therefore it is unconstitutional. That's it's, not it's enough. Not self, it's not self-interpreting. And some of the restrictions, uh, things that look like restrictions, are also empowerments of democracy, they enable democracy. They're the guardrails and the roadways that actually allow us to tread a democratic path. Yeah, I think that rather than say that Trump is a threat to democracy, I might say that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, codes the idea that insurrectionists are threats to democracy and can't be allowed to be in a position where they can destroy the apparatus of democracy. That's not the same thing as, and yes, it might be some undemocratic to do that in the, you know, perfectly abstract sense, but that is just not, saying that is just not enough to make it unconstitutional. So, and, and, and final wrinkle on that, you might say, well, you know, the presidency is the most important vote and you're limiting, you know, people's vote for the presidency, which is really important. And you say, on the other hand, well, you can vote for anyone other than an insurrectionist. You have all sorts of options. But the point is, if you vote for a president who actually is an insurrectionist, that is a more dangerous vote than any other vote that you can cast for a merely insurrectionist senator or representative or governor or dog catcher. So Tribe keeps reminding us very powerfully that it's on both sides. But I wouldn't say democracy isn't a constitutional value. You just made that up. I would just say it cuts both ways on the facts of this case. Yeah. No, I agree that 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 there is that democracy is part of the constitution, but it's but it's just not that simple to identify one one you know element of a of a large picture that might be less than perfectly uh, enabling of the population's power, um, and say, well, that's that can't be permitted because it's undemocratic. Because you have to look at the kind of the net the democratic effect, you know, as well as every other effect. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So. Um, Okay, so we've identified these different groups that the uh, that the pundits have fallen in. Do you feel that the that you can have a similar classification? Uh, for, now we don't know where the justices are going to come out, but when you handicap them, do you maybe you don't classify them on exactly the same lines? But do you have something analogous to that when you think about the justices? Yeah, so let's actually go through them. Let's go through them as it were, left to right, so to speak, the same way we started with some pundits on the left and then, you know, some pundits on the right. Let's do the same thing for the court. So, all right, so let's start with the the uh, more liberal justices. I guess, you know, probably the person furthest on the left I would identify as uh, Sonia Sotomayor. One distinctive thing about Justice Sotomayor is she was a trial judge for many years. There are findings of fact here, and I think she's going to give those uh, great respect, and, de- and they deserve great respect because the trial judge was pretty careful in making findings of fact. Some of those findings of fact are all about what's in Donald Trump's head and his intentions. The 14th Amendment, Section 3, is about people who engage in insurrection and give aid and comfort or, um, to insurrectionists. And in an earlier case, she took seriously um, what Donald Trump said. She took it seriously and literally in the Trump travel ban case and was more willing, I think, to, if you take Trump at his word, to say this is actually really in tension with all sorts of constitutional values. Now, in that case, I think she gave, frankly, a little too much weight 
perhaps to Trump's statements. I actually thought that in the so-called travel ban case, in the final version of the the regulations, it was there was a formal neutrality that saved the statute. But she's going to be, I think, very open to the idea that we had a trial and it was a fair trial and it didn't require juries for reason a jury for reasons that we heard in our Jarkasi episode and we heard Justice Sotomayor make very powerful arguments it was she, there was a good judge good trial judge who made solid findings of fact and took Trump in some ways at his word and a finder of fact is permitted to do that i think so and in the amicus brief that i'm um, hoping to write i will be talking about the importance of this judge's specific findings because and this the other justices make pay more attention to this feature, and it may be especially attractive to some of the other justices, to uphold what Colorado has done is not to impose the same rule on any of the other states, which are allowed to have their own procedures, what we talked about in earlier episodes as the 50-state solution. Now, Justice uh, Sotomayor may or may not care as much quite about the 50-state solution as someone who's rather Brandeisian in his sensibilities, maybe the chief justice or something. But she was a trial judge, and she's going to, I think, she may begin by recognizing that this trial judge uh, acted um, with care and, and, and made very plausible factual findings about what was in Donald Trump's head. You know, she also was a vote uh, for in the Moore versus Harper case, um, and, you know, ISL is, is relevant to this case as well. It absolutely is. And she was a superstar at oral argument. And here we're talking about deferring to now not trial judges, but state Supreme Court justices. And in the brief, we will play the Moore versus Harper card and explain if you were willing to defer to state judges in the Moore versus Harper case, you should do the same thing here. Right. And I mean, not just state judges, but also state judges ruling on, on state election law. Exactly so. Um, and there are going to be even some more um, specifics, even when federal elections are involved. As justices, they were in Moore versus Harper. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so it's hard to, to say really who's, who's more to the left than who, but why don't we uh, take next uh, Justice uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Certainly she, she has a distinctive so far uh, approach to to her judicial reasoning. And in the two oral arguments we attended, Andy, I think we both came away thinking that she was the most, I think, open to our amicus briefs in Moore versus Harper and Moore versus United States. She may be st- still early to tell in a liberal originalist tradition. I hope she is. You know, I locate myself as an originalist and I'm a self described, self understood liberal. And oh, Justice Jackson, just you wait. We've got some amazing stuff in our amicus brief that that hasn't been featured yet. New originalist evidence, compelling originalist evidence that the core understanding of the framers of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was about making sure that there was not going to be not just another civil war, but another kind of insurrection against the electoral system that there were actually two insurrections in the 1860s. There's the one that people know most about, resulting in half a million deaths. We call that the Civil War. That starts after Fort Sumter, April 1861. But before that, there was a concerted effort, we're going to try to show, to prevent 
the inauguration, the lawful inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. And the framers of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment were very much focused on that. And that's very similar to what happened on January 6th. And we're going to explain, you know, the cast of characters, how all that's so. I think she's going to be very open to the just the, the reminder that the Confederate flag made its way into the national capital. Yes, it's true. Half a million people didn't die on January 6th. Okay, but the Confederate flag made its way into the national capital. And there was a plot in the national capital involving people in the high levels of the executive branch in December and January of 1860 and January of 1861 just on the same kind of timetable as we saw this time around. Here's another thing that we're going to emphasize, and Rick Pildes emphasized this in his interview in The New Yorker, uh, on the question of self-execution. Do you need a congressional statute? He said, well, we don't require congressional statute in order to enforce Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, the racial equality imperative in Brown versus Board of Education. And we don't require congressional statute to take seriously the fundamental privileges and immunities of citizens and, and the incorporation of the Bill of Rights and the rights of indigent defendants to have paid counsel. These are things that Justice Sotomar cares deeply about. These are things that Justice Jackson cares deeply about. She was a criminal defense attorney. She cares a lot about Gideon versus Wainwright. And, and I promise you, so does Justice Sotomayor. And we are going to remind people in the brief that you didn't need a congressional statute in order to do Gideon. You didn't need a congressional statute in order to do incorporation of the Bill of Rights or Brown versus Board of Education. And those are things that I think Justice Sotomayor will find compelling in our amicus brief, but especially maybe Justice Jackson, because those are three kind of Hugo Black ideas, liberal originalism, Brown versus Board of Education. It says equal, we're going to do equal incorporation of the Bill of Rights, and Gideon versus Wainwright. Let's just go through that for a minute, just for the, from, from the, some of our audience that maybe haven't tuned in you know, to all these other episodes. So, right, because we Gideon did have Ver- episodes on that. Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about Gideon versus Wainwright, which is something we haven't talked that much about. Um, so um, here you have, you have a case with an indigent develop- defendant having inadequate, well, no representation. So this is, uh, where is this found in the 14th Amendment? I think the basic idea of both counsel and due process, that is a fair trial. Mm-hmm. Now, is this incorporation or is this um, just due process or where is this in the first? Well, in 1937, the Supreme Court reads the Sixth Amendment right of counsel to guarantee government appointed counsel in the case called Johnson versus Zerps, which is a Hugo Black opinion. And then what Gideon does is apply that, incorporate that, so to speak, against state and local governments. And what state is that in? Uh, Gideon versus Wainwright is the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis' state. Okay, so we're here in Florida, and this defendant did not have representation. And now, as a result of this case, um, which is decided under the 14th Amendment, um, section one. Now every defendant in what a felony trial um, yes. is now required to have counsel. Now right. is there and there is there a statute that says that at that point? N- not at all. So this is so okay. So this is the Fourteenth Amendment, Section One, being enforced 
without a congressional statute. There's no law that says you have to do this uh, specifically. Um, right. and the Constitution is law, but but they, they don't address this directly. And uh, right. so this so that you know sounds very similar to the to what we're talking here about here, which is well, you know, how do we how do we do? You know, there's no law, no congressional statute that says that the Colorado Secretary of State gets to, or, or the, the Colorado court gets to say that Donald Trump is off the ballot. Um, right. but, but you're saying, well, it's the, you know, there's, it's the same idea that it's in there, therefore it's law. Now, Section 5 says that, the, uh, that Congress can uh, enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment with appropriate legislation. Sure. But here's yeah. an example where it didn't do that, in Gideon versus Wayne, right? And nevertheless, right. This so okay. So what is different about Section Three that would that would cause it to not be self-executing in the way Gideon versus Wainwright established the self-executing uh, aspects of this privilege and immunity? In my view, nothing, and that's what we're going to argue, and we're going to say same with Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, equal meant equal meant equal, and you didn't need a congressional statute. And same with applying the Bill of Rights generally against the states, not just in Gideon, but in other situations, applying free speech and free press and free exercise for religion and all these fundamental guarantees against the states, what we call incorporation. Those did not require a congressional statute either. So, and this, Rick Pilda said just in a short little aside, he said, I said, you know, we don't tend to require congressional statutes in implementing lots of the Constitution, but especially the rest of the 14th Amendment. And Justice Jackson actually, I think, will be attentive to that because in the two previous cases where we filed amicus briefs, where we made originalist arguments about the Hilton case, about so-called independent state legislature doctrine or idea theory, she was very open to those originalist arguments. It was obvious she had read the brief with care. And, and the optics of a Confederate flag flying, you know, being brought into the nation's capital, which didn't happen actually in 1860 or 1861 and did happen, you see, on January 6th. Uh, I just ha it just seems to me that, that that would have special resonance for all the justices, but I would say especially Justices Sotomayor and Jackson, in part because, frankly, they're persons of color, as am I, and wow, that's a jolt. You know, I think the self-executing argument is important in, in for the justices that are more Burkean, okay? In other words, because it seems like a big change, and... Well, maybe they'd be more comfortable with it if Congress actually weighed in on it because it's a big change. Um, but of course, you could say the same thing about you know Brown, or you could say the yes. same thing about Gideon. That these also were big changes. And you incorporation. Know, you know, you yes. don't like it. You know that that's the law. You know, so right. You know, okay. All right. So that's so. So we've spoken about Justice Jackson, and and we've teased some originalist arguments that uh, that you plan to make, and of course. Frankly, that's the kind of argument you should make. I mean, a lot of people can write briefs. Um, you know, your your particular area uh, where you know you you excel is in originalism. So, of course, you know it's it's great that you're stepping up to the table, you know, for this. Um, okay, so let's talk now about Justice Kagan, and as long as we're talking about the justices on the left, 
And uh, of course, you've mentioned many times that she's more oriented towards precedent. So how do you see uh, her sensibilities fitting into this case? Justice Kagan believes in precedent. She also believes in institutions. Now, we've already talked about the importance of Moore versus Harper, but now let me talk a little bit about institutions. Institutionally, I think Justice Kagan might think that it's, it would be awkward for the court to have a completely partisan lineup. You know, three Democratic appointees versus six Republican appointees. So if it were the case that the only two votes that my position, um, my amicus brief, you know, were to, were to, to get, whereas Justice Sotomayor and Jackson, I maybe don't get Justice Kagan, you know, because then I, th- I think she might worry about a perception, even if it's not the reality, a perception of partisanship. So in order for me to get Justice Kagan's vote, truthfully, I, I need to get the, the vote. I'm aiming for the vote of, at, you know, I'm going to need at least two Republican appointees. And were I to get those, I think Justice Kagan might feel very comfortable being, you know, part of a bipartisan judicial coalition, an institutional coalition that shows that actually the justices aren't just like all the partisan politicians elsewhere in Washington. Well, so you know, you in order that- to get Justice Kagan, I've got to now, you know, get maybe Justice Kavanaugh or Chief Justice Roberts, and then I get Kagan as well. Well, let me ask you this. You say that Justice Kagan is an institutionalist. I mean, she's been a part of a number of institutions. You know, she was the, the dean of the Harvard Law School, but she's also been in the executive branch. She was the solicitor general. And she I, I think that she might be particularly offended by the notion of uh, an anti-democratic, you know, insurrection, you know, obstructing the election and that sort of thing, you know, as a patriot, um, and that and that if if you can make an argument that persuades her that this was an insurrection and that Trump was from the from the Oval Office, from the office of her boss when she was Solicitor General, that these acts took place, I think that she might be open to. Uh, or would she be necessarily open to, you think, more open by, by virtue of, of her uh, her belief in institutions and the notion that this is a fundamental undermining of those institutions? Well, that's a brilliant point, that she worked for an administration that didn't do this sort of thing. And so she understands the norm-shattering nature of Trump's actions in the aftermath of the election that he lost. So, yes, um, and we're going to highlight just in the brief how his actions are very similar to what happened shortly after Abraham Lincoln was elected president. Mm-hmm. And the Buchanan administration, you see, was trying to undermine the lawful, proper transition of power. And, of course, Obama didn't do anything like that when his team lost to Donald Trump. And, and she would be aware of that, that, that that's not how the executive branch operated when she worked in the executive branch. But we are going to highlight, you see, it's not, the 14th Amendment is not just about the Civil War, Section 3. It's about, there, there were actually two interactions. The first one before Sumter fell, you know, before even Lincoln was inaugurated, an effort to try to prevent that from happening. And then a second one after Sumter fell. Yeah, I mean, and I think the pattern here in, in the way we're approaching this is not, I don't think it's a cynical approach to the justices. 
In other words, we're not saying, oh, you know, this justice is a very political justice and doesn't want this candidate to win in the election or something like that. Uh, and therefore, we're going to um, we're going to try to make it clear that okay, you don't want them to win because you know they're going to you know make abortion harder to uh, to get or something like that. You know, something that has nothing to do with this case directly. Instead, there are different types of legal arguments that might appeal to different justices. And what we're, I think I was emphasizing here is that it becomes important, maybe in the case of Justice Kagan, to really make this case about how you know how much of, how, how this was an insurrection and it was exactly what 14.3 was written for. Those that's a legal argument, you know, but it's one that that might you know might resonate with her. Next, we're now crossing the aisle a bit. Um, you know, into the uh, the less liberal justices. So how about uh, Chief Justice Roberts? Institutionalist par excellence, I think, would find it very unfortunate if the, the lineup were 6-3 um, in a partisan way. If it were 6-3 in a nonpartisan, in a, in a way that there was a, a one Democratic appointee and one Republic, at least one Democratic and one Republican appointee, you know, in each group, he wouldn't love that. He's aiming. I'm hope he's. I think hoping for something like unanimity. That will be a test of his leadership. So he's looking to try to do something d- similar to what Warren Burger pulled off in the Nixon tapes case. And I think he might even look to write the opinion and and lead the court if he wants to do that. One, I think, even though he's not as much of an originalist, he has to focus on originalism because. That's a focal point. If everyone coordinates around the text, it's easier to get agreement if you're all in agreement that what binds you is actually the Constitution. They all, what's this case in its essence about? It's about oaths. And the oath is taken to the Constitution. And if you want to get unanimity, and you might say, well, where does unanimity come from? Is that a constitutional value? Maybe not, but it's an institutional value that he as chief is entitled to think about and does think about as chief, as has chiefs before him from John Marshall through Warren Burger and Chief Justice Rehnquist, for whom he clerked, you're going to be more likely to get unanimity, I'm going to argue, if you actually are all focused on the same thing, which is the text. And he's less of an originalist, a textualist than other folks. And this is a case all about oaths, and your oath to repeat is because the justices take oaths too, to the Constitution itself. So this is going to be a theme in our brief. He also, though, ideally doesn't want the Supreme Court to have to decide everything. His sensibilities are minimalist. I think he may like the theme of our brief of a 50-state solution that you can uphold what Colorado has done here without dictating what Michigan or Maine or Arizona or Wisconsin or Florida has to do. And the more we make clear to him that actually electoral college is itself a 50-state solution, these are themes in our brief that are consistent with Louis Brandeis. He clerked for Henry Friendly, did Chief Justice Roberts and friendly clerk for Brandeis. These are themes actually of Jeff Sutton, uh, whom I know he holds in very high regard, 50 state solution themes. We're also going to have themes of Robert Jackson, who was not a partisan in the most, one of his most famous cases, the Youngstown Steel Seizure case. He worked for a 
Democratic president, and then he ruled against a Democratic president. Well, John Roberts worked in Republican administrations, but he crossed the aisle in Sibelius because he believes in judicial independence. And I, I bet he doesn't love the, the prospect of having, you know, of a, a Trump attacking in the way that an insurrectionist might, attacking the central institutions of government, not just the next presidential election after 2024, but the independence of the judiciary, because this is what insurrectionists do. They attack the very vitals of a constitutional system. Those themes are going to be in our briefs. And Robert Jackson, why do I mention Robert Jackson? Because John Roberts clerked for two judges. Chief Justice Rehnquist, who clerked for Justice Jackson, Justice Robert Jackson, and Henry Friendly, who clerked for Brandeis. And if I want to say Chief Justice Roberts, I'm going to want to be thinking about his role models, um, his legal role models, who include Henry Friendly, who include Brandeis, who include Jackson. Also, of course, he clerked for William Rehnquist, but he distanced himself from one of Rehnquist's, I think, least impressive performances, which was Bush versus Gore. He wrote Moore versus Harper. He championed the idea that uh, state Supreme Courts have a role, which he articulated even earlier in the Rucho case, you see. So all of that, I hope, uh, is going to be in the brief, giving Justice Chief Justice Roberts in part a comfort level that his ruling allows um, room for federalism and other input from other important legal actors. You know, I think that the, the idea that the case is about oaths, actually, you know, when I read the Bowdoin-Paulson article, it, that really jumped out at me, and I mentioned it when we when we had the uh, interview with them, the first interview, that this is about oaths. You know, it's easy to say, well, the case is about oaths, and you took an oath to the Constitution, so you should rule our way, because we're right, okay? You know, I mean, you can say that in just about any case, okay? But in, but in fact, I think it goes a lot deeper, because... You know, the, because the 14th Amendment, Section 3, takes oaths very, very seriously. And there's a sense that different parts of the government have different duties. And that's Moore versus Harper, and that's deference to state state um, legislatures and state courts and state law and state constitutions. But also, another part of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and this was brought to our attention by Gerard Magliacca this past week, is Congress. And the idea that Congress has the ability to grant amnesty to President Trump and has not lets the court off the hook a little bit in the sense that the court does not have to reach beyond its proper purview. It can just be a court. It doesn't you know, have to step on the toes of the state and it doesn't have to step on the toes of Congress. And the people are still represented through Congress and their will is still carried out through Congress if, if uh, amnesty is indeed indicated. So it isn't necessary for the court to go beyond their oaths, even if they have a sense that we don't want to be the actor that, uh, you know, that changes the country or something like that. So that may appeal to him as well. Okay, let's keep moving. And I would say next would be Justice Kavanaugh. Who votes with Chief Justice Roberts, a very high percentage of the time, I think it may very well be that the two of them vote together more than any two other justice um, combination. Justice Kavanaugh is an institutionalist. He describes himself, you know, as a team player. 
he's a sports fan, basketball especially, and so he thinks, I think, about teams. He talked about this in his confirmation process. One of the things that gave me particular insight into Justice Kavanaugh is a piece that he wrote when he was Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. It was a short piece talk, I think, that he gave at Marquette Law School, and it was all about Justice Jackson. Justice, not Katenji Brown Jackson, she wasn't yet on the court. It was about Robert Jackson. Robert Jackson was a government attorney, executive branch attorney, and then in one of the most famous cases in his life, when he was on the Supreme Court, the Youngstown seizure, Steel Seizure case, ruled against the executive branch. And Kavanaugh's was a meditation, then Judge Kavanaugh's, because he was a former executive branch official before he joined the bench. And it was all about judicial independence. Okay, you were once part of the executive team, but you're no longer. Okay, so yes, he's a Trump nominee, but you know this is an opportunity for him to have a, a Robert Jackson-like moment of showing that that he's a just a pure judge. He's not a Trump judge. He's not you know an anti-Trump judge. He's just a judge judge because John Roberts feels that way very much in his bones. But he wasn't a Trump appointee. But the next two that we're going to talk about, along with Justice Kavanaugh, um, Justices Gorsuch and uh, Amy Coney Barrett, like Justice Kavanaugh, they're, they're Trump appointees. And this case gives them an opportunity to, sh to show the world what they have been saying, which is, we're not Trump judges, we're just judges. What in my brief in particular, my amicus brief, you know, might appeal especially to Justice Kavanaugh's sensibility. Justice Kavanaugh is interested in history, very much so, and originalism. And I'm going to have, he's not uniquely uh, an originalist justice. I think I'm going to be able to tell Justice Kavanaugh some very interesting things about the background of 14th Amendment Section 3 that he may not know now. Truthfully, I didn't know some of these things a month ago. But I know them now, and I'm going to try to share the benefits of what I've uh, learned with the court. And I'm cautious and optimistic that Justice Kavanaugh will take a look at that. Look, he went the furthest. We keep coming back to Moore versus Harper, but he actually, you know, was kind of team Bush versus Gore way back when um, as a lawyer. Oh, so was John Roberts way back when. And yet they came all the way over to Moore versus Harper. So they're open to, I think, you know, good originalist arguments. Justice Kavanaugh, of course, does care about precedents as well. And Moore versus Harper is, is a great precedent for our team. He think, is worried about a destabilizing a ruling of a certain sort. And I'm going to try to reassure him as I'm trying to reassure the chief and other justices that actually the, the most stable um, judicial disposition would be to allow Colorado to be Colorado and other states can do their own thing. And that's actually minimizing the, the splash, the footprint of the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, um, you know, at the beginning, I, I talked about how some of the arguments uh, from the pundits did were not necessarily law-filled arguments, but rather, um, you know, political or consequential or type arguments. You know, Chief Justice Roberts, um, and I think Justice Kavanaugh would go along with us based on what you've said to me, um, you know, famously used the umpire analogy or metaphor. And, uh, you know, the idea that it's balls and strikes. So is, it, is this in the strike zone of the law or isn't? Isn't it? 
And that I think if you take that approach, then you come squarely in the uh, the crosshairs of section of section three in this case. Now let's just take a moment here to uh, provide our listeners who are interested in gaining their continuing legal education credit with the code that they need. So this week the code is regulate, R E G U L A T E, and it's not case sensitive. Regulate. So again, if you're Pennsylvania, New Jersey, or New York attorney, member of the bar there, very easy to get your CLE. Just go to podcast.njsba.com, fill in the form, put in regulate for the code, and you're on your way. For most other states, reciprocity is available. Just consult with your state bar association for how to do that. Okay. And thank you to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering with us on this. Okay, so back to our uh, justices. And uh, we just uh, finished with Justice Kavanaugh. And now I would say next might be Justice Barrett. And I have less of a sense of Justice Barrett. She hasn't been on the court quite as long, but of course, we got her vote in Moore versus Harper. And just being very predictive, I. I uh, think she may very well be willing to to be in a coalition uh, with the chief and Justice Kavanaugh. We've seen that in other cases. Like Justice Kavanaugh, she's a Trump appointee but doesn't see herself, I'm quite sure, as a Trump justice. She sees herself as a justice. And she said that on many occasions. And I think she... I'm hoping she has original sensibility. She also believes in precedent. So I'm hoping when she takes a look at our amicus brief, she'll say, this is not a partisan brief. It's not, you know, red or blue. It's, it's just telling me a whole bunch of things about this provision of the Constitution that's all about oaths. She happens to be someone who by her, her background, very sensitive to the idea of, of the solemnity of the oath. She she taught at Notre Dame, a school with a very strong tradition of, of taking s- seriously things like oaths. That's just not, uh, she wouldn't see that as just fluff. So you see, I mean, I'm a very optimistic little fellow. The pundits are saying, oh, you know, this this has no chance, this lawsuit, they're going to, the Supreme Court going to swat it down. And I'm thinking, I've got a chance with every justice so far. I mean, we can keep going, but I, I, I'm, I'm not conceding any of these. I mean, we've attended two oral arguments and, uh, with, you know, Justice Barrett. Um, the impression that I got, you know, from listening to her at oral argument was that she was quite prepared, that she appeared to have read the briefs. and that Whip she smart. Was open to persuasion because she espoused some of the arguments from, from various briefs. So She did. I mean, I mean, I happen to believe that, you know, when you write a great brief, Akil, in this case, and uh, that uh, it will be persuasive. Not persuasive so much because of its rhetoric, but because I believe that uh, you're in the right um, on the law here So and the history. So let's, uh, let's go for it. Okay. Next, I suppose, would be Justice Gorsuch. What's your sense of Justice Gorsuch in this case? Now, of course, we do know that he ruled... Uh, as, uh, as a lower court judge uh, on a Colorado ballot question that was uh, relevant to this case. Right. So I have a good feeling about Justice Gorsuch. He's shown himself to be willing to cross the aisle in famous case called Bostock about sexual orientation in the workplace. 
gay rights in the workplace. He's crossed the aisle and joined liberals in very famously in, in cases involving Native Americans, a case called McGirt in particular, and in other cases involving civil liberties and rights of individuals against the government in situations involving excessive fines and jury unanimity. But Justice Gorsuch, to repeat, when he was Judge Gorsuch, understood that Colorado law authorizes Colorado officials to keep people off the ballot if they don't meet the eligibility requirements. And if that's true for age, you know, it's true for oath-breaking insurrectionists. And so I actually think that we've got a real sh shot at Justice Gorsuch, who, of course, is appointed by Donald Trump, but thinks of himself very much, and deservedly so, as just an honest judge. Well, I think that the you know fifty state solution may may be appealing to him, you know, because it it's consistent with his own ruling. So, I mean, it doesn't take much to see that. Um, and uh, okay, and would you say that he's interested in originalist arguments as well? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, a couple of of areas in our brief that we you know should emphasize uh, as far as Justice Gorsuch. Okay, so next, I think I would. I would probably speak about Justice Alito. And the one thing I can tell you about uh, Justice Alito, I hope this isn't talking out of school too much, but in the most one the most important opinions for the court that he's written, he has shown willingness to take seriously liberals if they're making strong originalist arguments. Now, both of those cases, it's true, involved arguably conservative results, a case called McDonald, uh, City of Chicago versus McDonald about gun rights and the Dobbs case and the liberal originalist in question in, in both cases was yours truly. But here's what I can tell you, I, th I think without saying anything Im improper, is when I first met Justice Alito, he actually sa said, you know, Akhil, I read your work on the 14th Amendment, and I actually really learned a lot from it. So this wasn't a law clerk that put in these citations, and Justice Alito seemed genuinely interested in learning about the background of the 14th Amendment, because the standard argument before City of Chicago versus McDonald was gun rights are all about the Second Amendment. And that's Justice Scalia's opinion in Heller, which I don't think is actually a very good opinion. I think Justice's opinion is a much better opinion because the 14th Amendment really was all about guns. But it, it tickled me that he actually told me, oh, I actually read the book and I learned something from it. It was interesting to me. Justice Alito is a great scholar. He's a very prodigious reader, as are many of the other justices. Um, Amy Coney Barrett was a professor. And Brett Kavanaugh, I promise you, is a reader. So all this gives me at least hope that he's going to read the brief in a fair-minded way, which is all any advocate can ever hope for. We will see. And frankly, Akil, I'm not really sure, you know, Justice Alito is, is conservative, obviously. But what conservative value is upheld by ignoring a provision in the Constitution and not enforcing it? You know, you might like a conservative candidate, but I don't see this case. And you've pointed out how you have liberals and conservatives all over the place on this case. So I'm not sure that the fact he's conservative point, you know, directs his vote, you know, by default 
um, in one direction or the other on this case. I think in addition this might to be a case Akeel, where the best argument wins with him. In addition to Akil, who here are two people that I do believe Justice Alito holds in high regard. Mike Ludig, they were friends way back when in the just, Reagan Justice Department, and Mike Paulson. Ditto. Just as I didn't mention it, but of course I should have, Will Bode clerked for John Roberts, and John Roberts holds Will Bode in very high regard. So there you have it. Now, I think Justice Alito also holds in very high regard people like Michael McConnell, who are more skeptical of some of these arguments. But let's take Moore versus Harper. Justice Alito did not actually rule against the position that that we advocated in our amicus brief. He didn't think he needed to reach the issue. But that was movement on his part because before that, Justice Alito had actually been very pro-Bush v. Gore ISL. So again, so so far, I'm not counting out any of these justices, and I think actually they're going to give me and every other brief writer a fair shot. They're going to read the briefs, and they're, they're smart and thoughtful people. What arguments that we intend to make anyway, you know, might resonate with uh, which justice? Justice Alito did not begin, I think, his, his journey in law as an originalist. Originalism hadn't yet kind of achieved the prominence um, within the conservative movement that it did after Bork and Scalia and the founding of the Federalist Society and Justice Alito went to law school before the founding of the Federalist Society. But over the course of his time on the court, he's become more of an originalist, has studied constitutional history more than he had before. And, and you see that in a case like City of Chicago versus McDonald. And I think he found the history very interesting and engaging. So I think he's very open to learning about the 14th Amendment and insurrection and oath-breaking in the same way that he was open to learning about the 14th Amendment and guns. And, you know, I think this case, one thing that we really haven't pointed out, I think this case lends itself to originalism uh, in a number of ways. And I think we've talked about it in previous episodes when we've been talking about the this the officer issue, you know, where you've said, okay, you know, here's you know Gerard Magliac with you know two hundred you know incidences of people saying this, that, or the other that shows that the presidency is an office. Show us one person that said you know otherwise, um, and why that you know, and of course it hasn't happened. So the point is that the original that. There haven't been strong originalist arguments coming from the other side of this case. And it, uh, the other reason originalism is going to loom large is there are not a lot of precedents. Mm-hmm. You see, so so this is, as the, they, they say, a kind of, to some extent, a case of first impression, at least for the modern Supreme Court. And so finally, we come to Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas really believes in originalism. Now, originalists disagree. My friend Steve Calabresi has taken different positions than yours truly. Justice Thomas, as a person who is willing to change his mind about things and reads the briefs, and we didn't get his vote in Moore versus Harper. Maybe we don't get his vote here, but maybe we do. I do think it, frankly, would be awkward. Since I I mentioned Justice Kagan probably wouldn't love a 6-3 split where it was just the Republicans versus the Democrats. I think it might be awkward were Justice Thomas alone in dissent. Let me tell you about a case where there was a certain awkwardness that was avoided, a case that I, I was involved in to a certain extent. 
It was the Paula Jones case, Jones versus Clinton. So again, a case very much personal to a, a president. That wasn't about Trump. That was about Clinton. And Neil and I had actually written an essay um, in the Harvard Law Review called Executive Privileges and Immunities, all about how to think about presidential immunity issues of various sorts. And I think Justice Breyer was pretty sympathetic to our point. In the end, we lost 9-0 on that position. And the audience deserves to know that way back when, that was the case where the, the Supreme Court rejected Akil's ideas nine to nothing. These, that does happen. Maybe I've learned some things since then. If you read Justice, Justice Breyer wrote separately in that case, and that was the year that Neil actually clerked for him. And if you read his opinion, it's pretty sympathetic to the Amar Katyal point of view, but at the very end, it actually concurs with the majority opinion rather than dissents, even though there are parts of that opinion that look as if they're going to rule in Clinton's favor. I think Justice Breyer, I've never talked to him about this at all, so I'm not telling any tale out of school, but it wouldn't shock me if Justice Breyer were attentive to the optics of the thing and said, gee, it will look awkward if I, Stephen Breyer, a Clinton appointee, am the only one who's siding with Clinton. Then it's going to look like they're Clinton judges and non-Clinton judges, and that's not true, and that's not a good look. I think that if you get eight, you may very well get nine for that reason. I'm not, I'm not starting with Justice uh, Thomas, maybe as the, the person who's most likely to vote on my side. But just to repeat, he's a very serious originalist. And I think I've got really compelling originalist evidence that hasn't actually been published by anyone, by myself or anyone else before. And so I'm not counting Justice Thomas out at all. I'm hoping to get his vote too, because he and I play the same game. And I don't mean to trivialize, I mean, there are rules. And he and I both think you take very seriously what Abraham Lincoln's party was trying to do with these landmark amendments. When you go to Justice Thomas's chambers, you will see a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Okay, so that's nine justices. So you won nine zero. So very good. Um, <laughs> Remember, I lost Jones versus Clinton nine zero. So, well, so but I'm so I'm such an optimistic little fellow. Yes, you're due. Um, but <laughs> but um, no, I I uh, you know the point here is is to uh, to sort of think about how you to think about how you think about uh, approaching a brief. You know, you're going to make your the arguments you're going to make, but. You know, you, there can be points of emphasis, and uh, perhaps things can be phrased in a way that might cohere with a justice's way of thinking and, and help them write their opinion, you know, with language that might be useful to them. Um, so, all right. So next week, we're going to be back right about when the brief is due. So, audience, I think that you may have to indulge us. We might be late next week with the podcast because we've got the Everscholar course this week which is going to take up a lot of the week and then uh, the brief is going to have to be finished probably by the 18th I think is is a deadline there's another deadline but I think we have to meet the first deadline and uh, so it might be that but but we promise that uh, we will be if we're late we'll only be a little bit late and you know we'll come and if, if we're late, it means we will have filed the brief. And so you'll get to hear about it and you'll get to read it. And I think that'll be, you know, that'll be fun. And I think, you know, we gave some clues this week as to what the brief will emphasize. So you might want to, you know, read up on that stuff. And uh, thank you, Akil. Good luck with uh, getting this done. I'll help out any way I can. 
and I'll see you in Florida very soon. Okay. <laughs>